From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado elects a governor this year, and Republican Heidi Ganahl hopes it's her. She says she'll push for more resource officers in schools and hopes more of those schools will be charters. I think charters are a very important part of the conversation, and we need to make it much easier to start charter schools in this state. Ganahl, a CU regent and former doggy daycare impresario, also talks gas prices, fentanyl, and the attempted 2020 coup orchestrated by a former visiting professor. It wasn't good for CU that he decided to get involved in this stuff while he was representing the University of Colorado. That bothered me. But I also believe in academic freedom, and I don't believe we can start firing people because of, um, you know, it's just a very thin line, right? You have to be very careful about that. During the membership drive, you made it clear you understand your essential role in keeping CPR well-funded. I choose to support CPR because as things have gotten more heated and divided in our political climate, CPR really focuses on providing facts and information. I very much appreciate dedication to accurate reporting and programs that give us a different look at life. Thank you for your support. You make it all possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado hasn't had a Republican governor since 2007. The GOP hopes to change that this year by unseating Democratic incumbent Jared Polis. We are meeting the candidates ahead of the June 28th primary. We've already heard from former Parker Mayor Greg Lopez. Now, it's Heidi Ganahl, who's the only Republican to hold statewide office in Colorado. She's a CU regent and a serial entrepreneur. Heidi, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Give us kind of the elevator pitch. Why does your voice matter in this race? Several fronts. First and foremost, I'm a mom. I have four kids, twin 10-year-olds, a 12-year-old and a 26-year-old. And I've been on the front lines of education reform, starting charter schools and being a regent at the University of Colorado. I'm also a small business owner. I founded Camp Bow Wow, the country's largest pet care franchise, back in 2000 until late 2014 when I sold it to VCA, the veterinary chain, and stayed on as CEO for a couple years before I ran for regent in 2016. What does that tell us about you, that... I care passionately about the American dream um, and opportunity, making sure that our kids and grandkids have the same opportunity that I did. I came from a family that had little money, but lots of love and inspiration and encouraged me to go do big things. And I'm really worried about what's happening on that front now. Yeah, give me an example of a block to opportunity in Colorado. I'll give you an example that launched me into politics, actually. When I was growing Camp Bow Wow, one of the regulatory agencies that oversaw kennels and dog daycare facilities was the Department of Agriculture and PACFA. And I remember them coming in. Wait, well, I don't even know. I don't know what PACFA is. Oh, sorry. It is the Pet Care Facilities Act. So they came in to do their inspection and they said, by the way, you've got to change the number of people you have in the dog play yards. And we had probably 50 or 60 camps around the country at this point, dog daycare, boarding, grooming, training. 
And they said, we think you need more staff on facility, on grounds, in order to watch the dogs. And I said, well, we've got a pretty well thought out formula. We've been keeping the dogs really safe. Our customers love it. And the inspector said, well, sorry, that's too bad. We just think it should be different. Um, One to 15 instead of one to 25. Well, what that did was require a lot more staff at the Colorado franchise locations, and it reduce their profitability dramatically and their ability to pay people more and hire more folks, you know, and and give them opportunities. And I thought, wow, how does this person who's not even elected and doesn't really know our business well get to come in and tell us how we do our business and take care of the dogs? Were the dogs safer? Afterwards or before? Afterwards. No, I mean, our safety record was still outstanding, but we did a good job before that rule came into play. Let's talk about an issue that is top of mind right now. Abortion. You've said you're pro-life. What does that mean in terms of if and when you think abortions should be allowed? I am pro-life with exceptions for rape, incest, health of the mother, and health of the fetus. Why are those exceptions important to you? Uh, I think that, um, you know, I've been a huge advocate for women, whether it was my launch of Moms Fight Back, my nonprofit that I started in 2013 to help um, moms with really tough issues their kids are facing. And then with She Factor, the business that I started with my daughter in 2019. And I support young women in living a life of opportunity and creating lives that they love and, and helping them through really difficult things that they face. And those situations that I named are really, really tough, difficult situations that I would like them to have, have the opportunity to make the decision for themselves with their doctors. Outside of that, though, aren't there any number of tough issues women face who may not be able to have an abortion if Roe v. Wade is overturned? Well, I believe Roe versus Wade should be overturned because of its ability to hand the decision back to the states. What I don't agree with is the bill that just passed this last session that makes it okay to have abortion up until birth. I don't think that's aligned with what the people in Colorado want. But the notion that someone would have an abortion close to birth is infinitesimal. I don't think it's as rare as some folks like to portray. I think that what I do know is that the people of Colorado, I I don't believe they're okay with this extreme of an abortion law. And I do think that Roe versus Wade should be overturned to honor the state's rights and the people of Colorado should speak. And I'll represent the people of Colorado on that issue. Would you push as governor for a law that restricted abortion with the exceptions you've laid out? Would that be a priority for you? Well, I certainly don't agree with the law as it stands right now and would have a conversation with the people across Colorado and see where we land and see where the legislature lands. That's, uh, you know, has to be something put to me on my desk by the legislature. We spoke to some Republican voters recently and heard a lot about the cost of living. Here's Brad Michael of Castle Rock. I would ask the candidates what they would do to address the problem of inflation and how it affects every Colorado. As a retired guy on a fixed income, um, you know, six months ago, I wouldn't have given that answer, but that's definitely what's at the forefront now. Boy, that's all I hear about right now out on the campaign trail. Actually, a couple things. Uh, gas, price of gas, inflation, cost of living, and also uh, mental health is a huge issue, which we can talk about more in a minute. As much as our leadership tries to say that things are okay right now, that's not what I'm hearing on the ground from small business owners and the gentleman that you spoke about. 
First and foremost, I believe we need to have an all-of-the-above energy approach and get our oil and gas industry back to work. We produce some of the cleanest energy on the planet right here in Colorado with some of the strictest regulations. So if we need to produce oil and gas, we should do it right here in Colorado where we know that we are taking care of the environment and being good stewards. And honestly, energy independence has never been more important watching what's happening in Ukraine. It's hard to call oil and gas clean when it contributes to climate change. Well, I think we all care about clean air, land, and water. And if we have the strictest regulations for producing it and we need it to live our lives, especially um, it affects the poorest in our economy right now if they can't afford to drive to work or drive to their child care facility, drive to see their parents in a nursing home. These are the day-to-day issues that folks are facing, and we are not ready to go all renewable right now. It is too far, too fast what's happening. So you've heard over and over again that people are concerned about the price of gas. And your answer to that is, let's get more reliant on this thing whose price fluctuates. I believe we should have an all-of-the-above approach, so I think it's too far, too fast to stop energy production in Colorado. And I think the steps that have been taken that have decimated our energy industry here are not appropriate for our state, for our smaller communities. And honestly, for the people of Colorado, I hear loud and clear that they are not okay with what's happening to the energy industry here. It is a global commodity, though. And so the, the price of oil and gas... Uh, is dependent upon more than what happens in Colorado. Would you say that's true? I agree, but I don't think it's an either or. I think it's an and both. And and then tell me what else you've been hearing about inflation. So you said yeah. uh, the price of gas. And what else? So we just traveled 19 counties in six days uh, across the western slope. And I heard loud and clear that affordable housing is a huge issue, whether it's finding employees or just being able to live their lives, the folks that have lived in these small towns for a long time and can't afford the property taxes, can't afford the rising cost of living in those small towns. So one-fourth of the cost of new housing is due to regulations, fees, and permits. So that's a way that I can help being governor by leading a charge to reduce those and make it uh, more enticing for developers to produce affordable housing in these smaller markets, but also in the Denver metro area. So that's about housing starts, in other words, new housing. Do you have a sense of what specifically you'd remove in terms of those costs or that regulation? Can you get that specific? Well, let's look at the Marshall Fire and what happened up there. I just moved out of Superior down to Douglas County a few years ago. So I used to live in Rock Creek, which was affected. A dear friend of mine lost her house in the Marshall Fire in Spanish Hills. And the cost to rebuild is so much more expensive because of the new building codes that I get. They have great intentions. They're very green. They want people developing houses that will last into the future and be good for our environment. And won't burn down again. Right. Yes. But it's not okay if they can't afford to rebuild. And right now, people are really struggling in in Superior, Louisville, Boulder County that lost their homes. And a lot of them can't rebuild. They're either underinsured or they can't afford the new prices for building again. So that's an example of a way that we can take pause and think maybe we're going too far too fast and we can, you know, be more, be more um, conservative about our approach. You have called for two big changes in state finances. You promised to eliminate the state income tax. You'd phase that out during your four-year term. And you vow to cut the state gas tax in half. 
you've said you can do that and still build roads and provide other services. The state income tax brings in about $9 billion a year. Gas tax raises $600 million a year. What would you cut to make up for that loss of revenue? So the budget has doubled. The state budget has doubled in the last decade to $36 billion. And the size of our government has grown by almost 25% in his term, adding over 4,000 FTEs or full-time employees to the agencies. Government has grown too much. So I think one of the most important things we can do is reduce the size of our bureaucracies, our agencies, and put decision-making over people's lives, businesses, families, back in the hands of Coloradans. I think that we can um, attack fraud and waste and also look at the return on investment in the dollars that we are spending. A lot of folks talk about zero-based budgeting, and I'm not saying that we should go there, but we can certainly take that approach and say, what do we need to get done through our state government? What do we need to provide as far as services and care for the people of Colorado? And then back it out and see if there are ways that we could cut the spending. Government has grown too much, you say. Give yes. me an example. Well, I think if you talk to the moms that and dads that dealt with the quarantines and mandates that came down from the public health departments through COVID, many are very uncomfortable with the power that that department and those agencies had. But I guess I mean economically. Like, where has government grown too much that you think uh, financially it's eating up people's dollars? I believe the transportation department has become overreaching and it's doing more urban planning and development and more um, oversight over small business owners, which I don't think is the appropriate role for that department. I believe that small business owners are being suffocated right now by lots of regulations and taxes. Take the bag fee, the delivery fee. The delivery fee just came through. It's 27 cents in addition to deliver someone food. I don't think the restaurant owners knew that was coming. Um, Obviously, our family has some barbecue restaurants, and we're pretty involved in that industry. And it was a shocker. It was done through the transportation bill, actually. And those fees get passed on the customer. And right now, our customers, the people of Colorado, need to be able to afford to buy groceries and buy gas and get housing and anything that we can do to reduce fees and taxes and regulations so that prices go down is going to be my priority. So I hear you talking about growth in oversight and regulation. I don't hear where you'd get $9 billion at another $600 million in savings. So you've, it's you've... reducing waste, reducing the size of government, the agencies, the spending that we're doing right now, those 4,000 FTEs or full-time employees that were added. Um, it's also reducing, um, eliminating any pork or pet projects in the in the budget right now. It's also competitive bidding, making sure that when we do build roads and, and um, create projects that we have to pay for through our state government funding, that we're making sure that we're getting the best prices and the best situations. It's also cutting loopholes and corporate favors. And then moving Tabor refunds to income tax reductions and doing that in a permanent way so that we can slowly reduce the income tax over time. This isn't something that's going to happen on day one. It's going to take time to do this. But if you look at the other states, states that have done this, they attract tremendous amounts of business, far more than states without zero income tax. And that tends to make up for a lot of the revenue lost also. You know, just to name a few of the areas government has grown, transportation, behavioral health, new preschool and free kindergarten programs, 
you've invoked transportation, but in terms of the mental health investments, the expansion of early childhood education, do you agree that spending should have increased in those areas? Oh, wow. I have been doing, oh, gosh, tons of meetings and tours and trying to figure out how we fix our broken mental health system in Colorado. And there are so many good intentioned people and organizations trying to fix this. But right now we have one of the highest suicide rates for children in our country. It is broken. So it's very complicated. It's something we have to do through our schools, through our families, through the mental health system. Right now, it takes four or five months for a child to get in for an introductory appointment. I talked to one of the heads of Children's Hospital, and they said they've never seen numbers like this. And honestly, there's a couple things that are high priority. Number one is getting more workers here in the mental health space. Um, They have a huge shortage. How would you do that? Well, you can incentivize folks. You can, as a regent at the University of Colorado, I can create more programs and certificates and avenues for folks to get uh, the ability to help that way, especially in rural Colorado. And also, we've got to make sure that accessibility to mental health is a huge thing that I'm hearing right now. It's very difficult. It's not affordable, even with your insurance. So lots of things to fix on that front. And I'm but working... I hear you. I hear you describing a problem that has been well described. Yeah. And would love to hear more about how you get there. And while you're shrinking, presumably, state funding. I think, I I mean, I don't think we need to spend more money, per se, on the mental health issue. I think it's very siloed and segmented right now. There's not a lot of efficiency. There's not a lot of collaboration. So that's how I approach things as a CEO and a business leader, is bring people together, talk about how we work together, how we don't silo. That's something that's happening a lot in education, too, specifically higher education, um, where we've got lots of different nursing programs competing with each other when we need to work together to make sure that we're not duplicating efforts. And I think that's happening in mental health care also. And then you look at the homelessness issue. That plays into the mental health conversation as well. Well, and that's a tough one. <laughs> yes. Do, do you None of share? these are easy topics to do, tackle. Do, do you want to share an idea you have towards combating homelessness? Well, we've got to have compassion. This is a really tough issue, and there are folks going through really difficult times right now. But I also think we have to have some tough love and clean up our streets right now Small businesses are shuttering in Denver. People aren't going to Rockies games or going out to dinner in Denver because of the homelessness issue and the tents, the needles, et cetera. So what we can do to um, have those folks go to shelters instead, there are a lot of organizations ready and willing to help. And then getting tough on fentanyl and drugs. My dad was a police officer. I'm a law and order girl. And from talking to law enforcement in our state, we've got to get back to keeping, um, you know, bad guys in jail and getting them off the streets and keeping them in jail if they're going to repeat offend. So I'm going to ask a question about fentanyl. Actually, I'm not, but we're going to let a listener do this. Betty Bullard of Colorado Springs. So what kind of plans do you have to try and get this under control? What do you think will work? It's not under control. What are you going to do to to get it under control, to work with the legislature and come up with something that'll work? And Heidi, let me just add that the legislature did pass fentanyl legislation in the last session. Did it go far enough? No. In fact, it made things worse, according to the law enforcement officials I'm talking to, because it makes it more difficult to prosecute dealers and distributors of fentanyl. Also, I think we should have zero tolerance for fentanyl possession. It's so dangerous to our community, to our state, to our families. Uh, One of the most impactful moments on the campaign trail was when I was at an event and a mom came up to me and handed me, put in my hand, a little wood ornament with a picture of her daughter. And she was probably 15 or 16 and said, 
this is my daughter. She was having a bad day. A friend of hers gave her a Xanax, and it was laced with fentanyl, and she died that day. And it had just been a few months before that. And I'm hearing those stories over and over again. But wouldn't her daughter have been prosecuted under your zero-tolerance policy? In other words, a lot of people who have fentanyl don't know that they possess it. No, there's there's the ability to have common sense, but also to the ability to be tough. And our law enforcement doesn't want to put 16-year-olds or their friends in jail. They want to put the guys that are on the street dealing drugs in jail. And they're having a very difficult time doing that. So we've got to back our law enforcement. We've got to back the ability for them to... Um, you know, have some tough love for some of these folks that are on the streets that may not have bad intentions, but it's flowing into our schools and communities, whether they like it or not. On the subject of crime, what do you think can be done to reduce the number of mass shootings? Oh, it's heartbreaking. I I, I know you're probably with me, but I can't stand watching one more, one more TV program highlighting another shooting. It's terrible. And it goes deep, right? This isn't an easy fix. We've got to look at the cultural underpinnings, um, what's happening to society around mental health and, and why these people feel the need to do this and get attention this way. So we need to have a a serious conversation about, number one, how to keep our kids safe when they're at school or if you're at the grocery store or at a concert. And that may mean taking some tougher measures on, you know, facility, hardening up our facilities and making sure that we have SROs in schools. I don't think it was appropriate to take SROs out of schools. But it also means preventing gun violence, but respecting rights and respecting the Second Amendment rights. Um, well, I, that's, that's a lot to unpack because yeah. you, you've floated a few ideas there. One is that you want to bring school resource officers back. You know, in, in yeah. Uvalde, we saw 13 officers in the school, uh, not school resource officers, but having responded to the shooting there. And it, it really didn't do anything. Uh, so is that really a solution? Well, what I know from being on Governor Hickenlooper's School Safety and Youth in Crisis Committee, I was representing a mom in a large district, I was in Boulder Valley District, um, is that school resource officers aren't just police officers that stand in the building. They build relationships with those kids. They have an eye and an ear to the ground about what's happening in the school and which kids are having trouble and struggling. And I think we probably had 50 different officers come through, school resource officers through to talk to us on that committee. And it was really um, just warm my heart, the relationship that they had with those kids. What happened in Texas was terrible, terrible. That is not what we learned from Columbine and some of the other shootings. You've got to go in right away and deal with it. And we also learned that on the school safety committee. But one of the most important things I learned from that committee and why I created a school safety pilot program was that every school is different. And we have to go in and assess each school. It could be a cultural problem. It could be a facility problem. It could be a training problem. We can't just pick one solution to affect all schools. You know, on the subject of school resource officers, children of color receive those officers, that police presence, in a very different way, uh, often, than white students. And there's a big concern about the school-to-prison pipeline. And that putting more law enforcement in school criminalizes childlike behavior. Is that a concern of yours? From the conversations that I had on the school safety committee and with parents who have lost children or been involved in schools that have school shootings, that is not the message that I hear. They are terrified. They want more protection. They want 
They want more policing and more support. And they also want attention paid to this issue more than a couple days after a shooting. We've got to keep this conversation alive. So I've created a five-point plan that I will institute as governor. And one of those things is an accountability dashboard. One for the schools in the district so that parents know what they're up against and what's happening in the schools right now that's not very transparent. You, you mean in terms of security, in terms of behavioral health? Oh, but, but like incidents, um, violent incidents, um, things that are happening in the school that parents would want to know about um, related to crime and disruptions and, you know, any trends that are going on. A dad in Parkland for, who lost his son at the Parkland shooting. In Florida. Max started this in Florida. And it's just a desire for transparency so that we know what we're dealing with because you can't manage what you don't measure. But on the flip side, as governor, I've got to be accountable and transparent with the people of Colorado This has to be one of my top issues, is making sure that our kids are safe. So I'm going to talk about it once a month in a press conference. I'm going to have specific metrics that I will track to make sure we're moving the needle. And we'll talk about the funding that we're providing, the programs that we're implementing, and the ways that we are going to make this a top priority and keep our kids safe at school. Now, you did mention guns in the Second Amendment. As we sit here today recording this, Congress is considering a package of bills to reduce mass shootings. Among other things, it would encourage states to adopt red flag gun laws. Colorado already has a law like that. So with a judge's approval, firearms can be temporarily removed from people who are a threat to themselves or others. Do you think Colorado's red flag law should remain on the books? I do have a question about the constitutionality of it. um, And I do think there's um, room for some shenanigans that can go on with that law, like if people are falsely accusing someone of having issues or that they shouldn't have a gun. We have to be very careful about the Second Amendment rights. They're Do you very... have evidence of shenanigans or is that just a fear you have? I've heard stories. Yeah. I'm yeah. But that's why a judge is involved, right? Yep. A judge yes. would get involved if there are shenanigans. Hopefully, yes. Um I think that it's a bigger issue about what are we gonna do to make sure that um that gun rights are preserved, but we also are being safe and keeping weapons out of the hands of mentally ill folks. You know, those with mental illness are much more likely to be violent against themselves if they're violent at all. And I think there are some who would hear that and say, you're scapegoating people with mental illness in talking about mass shootings, when the problem is that an 18-year-old can go in with an AR-15 and do a lot of damage in a little bit of time. How would you answer that? Well, to your point, most of the damage done um, is to themselves if a person is having mental health issues. And so that goes to the rising suicide rates that we have in this country and something that we have to address here in Colorado, especially around our kids. Again, this is a bigger issue. It's about mental health. It's about connection. It's about isolation. It's about what's happening in society overall. And I don't think COVID helped that. And that's nobody's fault. It's just a tragedy that's come of the last couple of years. Is it about the AR-15 and being in the hands of young people? Well, folks have been able to buy long guns for a very, very long time, even 18-year-olds. And, you know, this is a, a burgeoning issue. So um, I, I Would don't... Would you put an age limit on certain guns? I think it's more about beyond the ones that exist already, as you've acknowledged. Yeah, I'd have to consider that. I don't. I think it's more of an issue of um, society and what's happening. And um, again, we've got to be really careful about protecting Second Amendment rights in this country. Several Republican voters we spoke to, Heidi Ganahl, 
believe strongly in school choice. Are there options parents don't have today in Colorado that you'd like them to have if you were elected governor? Absolutely. Give me one. Well, 60% of our kids in Colorado can't read, write, or do math at grade level right now. And I'm sure you saw the report come out of Denver Public Schools that 5% of African-American and Hispanic kids can read at grade level. That is a tragedy, and that should not be happening in Colorado or anywhere in this country. So we've got to do whatever we can to fix this problem. We've got wonderful teachers. We've got some funding issues. The way finance, uh, education finance works in our state is wonky at best. <laughs> and so some of it's locked into the state constitution, Yes, by the way. But honestly, I think the most important thing we can do is give power back to parents to make good decisions for each child. I have four kids. They each learn very differently. And one of them has dyslexia. And we could not get the help we needed in the public schools. So I did have the ability to get tutoring and put her in a different situation that was better for her and she's thriving. I want every parent to have that opportunity and be able to um, have access to funding to do different things for their children if they need to. Charter schools, vouchers, what would a Ganahl administration bring in? Well, I've been a huge advocate of charter schools. And I was on the founding board of Golden View Classical Academy, helped launch Ascent Classical, and tried to open one up in Boulder Valley School District. Wasn't successful, even though we had 700 kids signed up for that school. So I think charters are a very important part of the conversation, and we need to make it much easier to start charter schools in this state. There's a lot of conversation that— You want to see more charter schools in Colorado? I Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a great option, and it allows parents to have more engagement in the process and education of their children. Do you think they're held accountable enough when they don't succeed? Oh, goodness, yes. I mean, people are going to walk with their feet. If someone puts their child in a charter school, they're being very selective and intentional about where they want their their student to go to school. They're going to be the first ones to leave that school if, if they're not doing the right things for the kids. Last year, as CU Regent, you sponsored a resolution that would have banned discriminatory or prejudicial attitudes at CU, including, I'll just quote one of them, that an individual because of their own race or gender, is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously. Uh, Now, this measure failed. But, you know, reading the language of it made me wonder if in the wake of George Floyd's murder, you, Heidi Ganahl, have done any thinking about your own unconscious biases or racism. Absolutely. That's a huge conversation at the University of Colorado and in my role in education. What epiphanies have you had personally? My epiphany is that Martin Luther King was a really smart guy, and I honor his words, and that's what I was trying to do in that resolution, that we should judge people on their character and not the color of their skin. What would you say to folks who think that the resolution was a way of shutting down the conversation that Martin Luther King wanted the country to have, though? I would say it's the exact opposite. I was encouraging the conversation and making sure that we're making good decisions for our students and our faculty at CU. So there was no aspect of that that was meant to shut down discussions of race? Absolutely not. I'd like to talk a little bit about elections and votes. First off, do you believe Joe Biden was duly elected the president of the United States? I ask this because some Republican voters still dispute that. Joe Biden is our president and Jared Polis is our governor, But here's the question that I think we need to be asking is why do people so so many people feel uncomfortable about that election? Why are so many people unsure that their vote matters? Well, because they had a former president 
who kept saying it over and over and over again, despite it not being true. But so did Stacey Abrams. And so did a lot of Democrats for four years saying Russia, 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 and Trump is not legitimate. There is lack of voter confidence on both sides, depending on who wins the election. And that can't happen in our country. Voting is one of the most important pieces keeping our country together. And so whatever I can do as a leader to provide transparency and reassurance and help people understand the process so that we can get back to all feeling confident that our vote matters, that is what I will do. Now, you've made a comparison there between Russian interference in the election and President Trump's false claims of election fraud. Our own intelligence agencies told us there was Russian meddling. That's true. The claims of election fraud from Mr. Trump are not true. Court after court after court and his own people have disputed it. Uh, That feels like an unfair comparison to me. So I think it's both sides. And this is how we get into trouble and why people don't trust the media right now, because it's important to listen to all sides of the conversation. Russian meddling happened. Election fraud widespread did not. In other words, as a journalist, it's very important to me to say one of those things is a fact and one of those isn't. So I think you're saying there's both sidesism happening, but those two things aren't both true. Does that make sense? But what I'm concerned about is how do we move forward? How do we move forward as a country and as a state? And in order to move forward, we have to understand that people on both sides feel uncomfortable about some aspects of our election. So how do how, what, how do you answer that? How do you Transparency, 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 and get people engaged in the process. Is get there them... enough transparency in Colorado? No. Now, granted, I wouldn't be running if I didn't think I could win, but we can always do better. We can always provide more transparency. We can always get people more engaged by being election judges, poll watchers, teaching them how it works. So this is not a conversation that's over. It's one that's just beginning. And my hope is to get to a point where we all feel really good about our elections again. Was the January 6th, 2021 insurrection on the U.S. Capitol, was it wrong? It was a really bad day for our country. And those that broke the law should be prosecuted. And those that were simply protesting should be not. Several Coloradans, I'll say, have been charged in connection with the events of that day. Some of those charges include impeding officers with a violent weapon, inflicting bodily injury. Do you think that they felt they were working at the behest of President Trump? I can't speak to what they were thinking. I just think if somebody broke the law, then they should be prosecuted. And if they were simply protesting, then not. I want to ask about the former visiting professor of conservative thought at CU, John Eastman, While he was working at CU in late 2020, early 2021, uh, Eastman served as a legal advisor to President Trump in attempting to overturn the results of the 2020 election. A key lawyer for the U.S. House has called Eastman the central player in the development of a legal strategy to justify a coup. Eastman left CU a few weeks after the insurrection. Noting that you are a CU regent, before the riot, you spoke of Eastman in a complimentary way on a conservative radio talk show. And just a few weeks ago on another radio program, you said you advocated against his firing, which is ultimately not how he left CU, by the way. Was it appropriate to have someone on the CU faculty who is leading Trump's efforts to overturn a legitimate election? Well, I'm glad you brought this up so I can clear up a few things. First of all, I've never met Mr. Eastman. I've never talked to him. I was not involved in his hiring. We are not involved in their hiring as regents. 
But I did support the Benson Center, and I was saying that there were a lot of fantastic scholars that went through the Benson Center. He was collectively grouped into that. Under the auspices. Yes, yes. And this was in the fall before anything had happened. I do think it's unfortunate, and it it wasn't good for CU that he involved or that he decided to uh, represent or get involved in this stuff while he was representing the University of Colorado. That bothered me. But I also believe in academic freedom, and I don't believe we can start firing people because of, um, you know, of it's just a very thin line, right? You have to be very careful about that. And so, but let, let me drill in on unfortunate. It's unfortunate for CU. Do, do you want to say a few more words about why it's unfortunate? Well, when you decide to be a visiting scholar or represent CU, you have to um, think through um, your actions outside of the university and how that will affect the university. So as a regent, that, that bothered me. Because you disagree with Eastman's uh, relationship to Mr. Trump and overturning the election? I would just say that, I, you know, people need to think about their actions outside of the university when they're representing us as a visiting scholar. Do you disagree with his actions? <laughs> I think, uh, boy, there was a lot that went on that was bad news uh, for our country and for um, for the University of Colorado being connected to it. Did this ever reach a firing offense? I, it was discussed. And, and I advocated for academic freedom and letting it play out in the public. Can you give us an example of achieving a compromise, solving a problem with someone whose views differed from your own, uh, maybe as regent or in running your businesses? A couple examples. First is that I worked with uh, Representative Meg Froelich on a bill called Julie's Law through my nonprofit Moms Fight Back to create training on domestic violence and child abuse for family courts and the advocates that work in the family court system. Froelich is a Democrat. Yeah. Yeah. We worked on that for a couple of years and came to a great um, resolution on it and got some legislation passed. So proud of that. And also on the region board. Um, I know a lot of the news says that we have a pretty feisty relationship, but I actually consider the region's the Democrat regents, my friends, and we have a good relationship and um, was able to pass a resolution last fall to clarify that we did not want foreign bad actors donating or investing in the University of Colorado. And we passed that in a bipartisan way. What are you reading now? What am I reading now? I don't have a lot of time to read for fun, but I'm reading tons of policy papers and learning as much as I can about the issues that Colorado is facing around water and agriculture and homelessness and crime and the climate, all of it. I'm trying to learn as much as I can, as quickly as I can, so that I am ready to go day one as uh, the first woman governor of Colorado. That's right. Colorado has never had a woman elected governor or to the U.S. Senate, for that matter. You you invoked climate there, and it did make me want to ask just before we go, where does human-caused climate change fall on your list of priorities? I think we all want clean land, clean air, clean water, and the environment's extremely important to me. I have four children, and hopefully I'll have grandchildren and a long line ahead of, um, of our family that I want to flourish here. So it's very important to me, and I think that uh, um, there's it's interesting, a, like, a lot I, we can do better. I hear the pivot when I ask about climate to clean air and clean water. Climate's a little different, right? It's not a pollution necessarily that's making your drinking water foul. It is a gas in the atmosphere that's making things hotter, drier, and less livable. So I'm, I'm asking very specifically where human-caused climate change related to fossil fuel consumption falls on your priority list. 
man is involved in changing the climate, but it can't be at the cost of our livelihoods and the poorest in our society. And by destroying our energy industry here in Colorado that produces some of the cleanest energy on the planet, we've going too far too fast. And we've got to have some measured responses to this instead of destroying our economy in order to address it. And yet, the economic effects of climate change also hit the poor disproportionately. As it gets hotter, folks who don't have air conditioning will suffer more. In other words, it's an economic issue either way. It's got to have a balance. We've got to have balance. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the conversation. Republican gubernatorial candidate Heidi Ganahl recorded earlier this week. She faces Greg Lopez in the June 28th primary. His conversations parked over at CPR.org. That's also where you'll find annotated transcripts for both. When we come back, making sure Juneteenth makes a difference. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're about to step out the door. You've got your keys, your wallet, and CPR. If you have your phone with you, we're just a tap away. Listen live at CPR.org or use the Colorado Public Radio app on your phone. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado marks Juneteenth for the first time as a state holiday on Monday. It is also now a federal holiday. It acknowledges the actual end of slavery in 1865 when enslaved people in Texas finally learned of their freedom. That was two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation. CPR's race, diversity, and equity reporter Elaine Tassi asked three Coloradans what they hope for Juneteenth, now that it's an official holiday. Rita Lewis is a lawyer and Denver native. Dr. Daddio is a black radio station pioneer in Colorado. And Norman Harris is a fifth-generation Denverite who's now in charge of the city's Juneteenth celebrations. I really sincerely believe that we as African Americans have the opportunity to define what this means for our country. You know how Martin Luther King Day is often celebrated as a day of service? Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, what do you all think uh, Juneteenth will, how it will be celebrated moving forward? Like with kids who go to school now, they'll have curricula that addresses Juneteenth. And I'm just wondering if you want to comment on that? Yes, I do, because it's not promised. There is no curriculum, right? We are, we're just opening the door. You know, just like you don't know, there's plenty of teachers I'm sure maybe trying to build in their curriculums. But I think what this does is it starts to open the door. What I also believe we should be focusing on at this point in time is reflection and atonement. But that needs to happen across all communities. And when I say that we as the black community have the opportunity to define this holiday, I believe that we have to be inclusive of who celebrates it. And we have been a model for that down in five points. When Norman mentioned that there wasn't any guarantee of curricula about this, I'm wondering, do any of you have children or grandchildren? And if so, have you heard them talking about anything that they're learning in school or being told that they will learn in school as it pertains to Juneteenth? No, that is the problem. And now we've got the states that are having the position to determine what's being taught in our schools. And if it's pertaining basically with black, it is now being anchored or taken out of the program. 
and you can't talk about it. Do we have, yeah, I have grandkids that are in school. No, they do not come home talking about no Juneteenth. They don't come home really talking about Dr. Martin Luther King. And what and about so, you, Norman? Do you have um, yeah? I've got a, I've got a twenty three year old and a two year old. So um, my twenty three year old definitely got a crash course in Juneteenth because he literally watched us rebuild the celebration down here. I'm very excited that my two year old will have the opportunity to hopefully experience some of the changes that it being a holiday brings in terms of the curriculums and and things of that nature. So if someone were to say to any of you, what is Juneteenth all about? What would you say as a response as far as what you think they may not already know? Rita, do you want to start? I'd like to see more economic growth and prosperity for Black businesses and Black people in Juneteenth. But I'd also like to encourage us to make Juneteenth our Black Wall Street. When people ask me about Juneteenth, I tell them about the history first, and then I tell them about the potential of building on that and creating Black growth, generational wealth, and, you know, embracing the history as well. So that's what I would like to see because, you know, Norman's done a great job and Daddy-O did the same thing with Juneteenth. You've got the food, you've got the entertainment, you have the vendors, you have the concerts afterwards. At least that's what I remember and what I look forward to and definitely want to continue on that. But maybe we should go off path a little bit. Norman. Ask Daddy-O. I want to okay. go Okay. What about you, Daddy-O? We'll get back to Norman after. <laughs> well, my feeling is that it's going to develop itself is going to get to a point where hopefully we will have the control of what we can do for our Black community. What we've noticed is that we've created an amazing platform and we're able to bring people at scale to the table. We are moving forward into a space of using that platform to start advocating for policy. We've had conversations with groups such as the ACLU, to be a partner to start bringing community to the table and taking a policy advocacy approach to our work. Secondly, we have extended our programming, understanding that we do have an amazing platform. So what that looks like is along with the Juneteenth celebration that we come and all enjoy in five points, we have year-round programming that we are developing, including a series called A Mashup, in which we are exploring social justice issues in creative and engaging spaces. Thirdly, we're making this a place-based strategy. And so our final vision is the Juneteenth Cultural Center, which will sit on the corner of 26th and Welton, a property that my grandfather developed in the late 1980s, or I'm sorry, early 1980s. My vision is to repurpose the building so it services low-income creatives and artists and actually is an entertainment center that functions as a business. What's it being used for now? Right now, it is a low-income housing complex servicing veterans of the U.S. Army. But it only has one function. It's just a housing complex. What if it functioned as a business and showcased the talents of creatives who were looking to live in the neighborhood but can't afford it? So we are taking this opportunity to catapult and catalyze our efforts to bring community together and grow our community. So that's our goals, and it's going to manifest in the next five years. I expect you to drive down Welton Street 
and on the corner of 26 Welton, you're going to see the Juneteenth Community Center. And it's going to be a home and a place for our people to start contributing back to the fabric of the neighborhood that we helped create in the first place. Norman Harris, Rita Lewis, and Dr. Daddio, three longtime Coloradans, speaking with CPR's Elaine Tassie about the future of Juneteenth. There will be more of their conversation in the Colorado Matters podcast today. And that is our show for today. Thanks for spending time with us. This is CPR News and KRCC.